Well, good morning, everyone. Kids, you're going to learn to have long attention spans by the end of the summer, so it's going to be a really fun few months for you. Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We are almost finished this book. And today we're going to be covering nine verses, um, verses 1 to 9. Can you believe it's been like 10 years already? Like, I've been going here, next, next week will be my 10th year, like in a row, going. And those are really, really quick 10 years. And it's amazing when we look back, you know, from where something was a decade ago, and to notice all that's changed. And we've seen so many changes in this church, not just, you know, being in a different building um, every few years, but so many changed lives. You know, most importantly, so many, I know so many people here in this church, including myself, got saved in this church. And we praise God for that, that souls have been changed by the grace of God. People have been baptized, there's been marriages, there's been children, there's been losses, and there's been victories over sin. And it's always amazing just to see that God is working in this church, and that God is going to continue to work in this church. And that means he's going to continue to work through you. And so with that, I want to ask a question for you. As we look back at the last 10 years, if you look back in your own life, if you look back at the last six months, if you look back at the last, the last year, the last 10 years even, what has changed in your life with God? You know, what has changed in your walk with Jesus? How has he changed you? you know, are you still the same man or woman that you were when you first came to him? Has there been progress in your life? As the scriptures say, as you encounter Jesus, are you being changed from one degree of glory to the next? And I ask that question because Christians are not stationary people. You know, we don't just sit here and still and never change, never move. A Christian will change. You know, how, how you think about things in this world, how you think about God, how you feel about certain situations, how you react certain situations will change as you grow in Christ. A Christian, again, will not stay the same. They cannot stay the same because Scripture says they cannot. The Bible says that he, Jesus, God, who began a good work in you, will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. What that means is God is going to continue to work in you. You know, I don't know how good you might think you are doing this morning, how bad you think you're doing, whether it's a sin in your life that you just can't seem to overcome, or whether you're jumping leaps and bounds in Christ, Jesus is working in you. He has not given up on you. He will not give up on you. He will change you for the better. Do you want to be changed by God? Like, show of hands, maybe for a second. If you want God to change your life for the better, put your hands up. Half of you, that's, that's kind of worrying, but more of you putting your hands up. That's okay. I want to be changed by God for the better. But if we want to be changed by God, how many of us want to live a life that proves that that change has happened? Because you know, it's okay to say that we would want that change, but when that change comes, are we prepared to walk in a different way? See, there will be proof of a changed life. And that proof is found in a word called work. Christianity is a faith that is marked by our work. Work is central to being a Christian. Now, work is not the means of salvation. We, do not, we are not saved by our works. We do not become more you know, holy by being, doing good things. We do not become 
you know, more saved or less saved, but how good or bad we're doing on a day. Our salvation is not based on works. It is rather the proof of our faith. Works are the proof of our faith. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift from God, not your own works that no man can boast. So he says quite clearly that our faith is a gift from God. We cannot earn it. We simply receive it. But he says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, says the same thing. He says there are people who call themselves Christians who will say, well, I'm a Christian because I have faith. But James says to them, I will prove to you I'm a Christian. I will prove my faith by my works. He says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so if you are living a life that is transformed by the grace of God, you're going to get to work. You're going to be busy and active for the Lord. You're going to be different. You're going to walk a different walk than the rest of this world. You will not be the same man or the same woman. I say, praise Jesus for that. So the question is, where do we start? You know, it's okay to say, you know, we have to do this, we have to work, but you know, how practically do we do we start walking in the grace that God has given us? Well, our text this morning gives us just a few practical examples of how we walk the walk of a Christian life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the work that you have done in this church and in our lives, Lord, these past few years. And God, I thank you that you are continuing to do the work. God, that your grace has not run out, that you will never give up on us, God. That you will complete that work in us. You will make us more and more like Jesus. And Holy Spirit, that is a work of grace by you. And I pray that we would walk in the grace that you have given us. As we study your word, God, would you reveal Jesus more and more to us so that we may see his glory and be transformed. Holy Spirit, would you speak to one of us? Give us attention, Lord, to your word. Give us an expectancy that you will speak to us. God, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, God. And be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's start with verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul begins verse 1 with the word, therefore. You've heard this before, but a really handy Bible reading tip is if you see the word therefore, you ask what it is therefore. It's a really simple one, but it gives you an idea that there's such a thing called context in the Bible. When you see the word therefore, it is connecting this passage to what Paul has just previously spoken about. So when you cut out the bit in the middle about the joy and crown, he's saying, therefore, stand in the Lord. So whatever Paul is spoken about, he is saying this is going to have a fundamental impact on how we live our lives as Christians. So what has he been speaking about? Well, in the last few verses of chapter 3, Paul has finished sharing with us the future hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. Now, when we use the word hope, we don't mean like a wishy-washy kind of hope, you know, where I hope 
things work out. I hope win the lottery. I hope it doesn't rain because the clothes are on the line. Not a kind of uncertain hope. It's a hope that is secure. It is a, it is a guarantee. And it is something that will happen. You see, because of the gospel, the gospel that we Christians believe in, you know, because of the work of Jesus on the cross for you and for me, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, certain things have become true for you. You know, because of your belief in the gospel, your sins have been forgiven. Because of your faith in Jesus, you are right now a child of God being transformed. But because of your belief in the gospel, you have not only a past promise and a present hope, you have a future hope. And that's what Paul is reminding us of right now. So what is our future hope as Christians? It is an eternity with Jesus Christ. You know, heaven is heaven because Jesus is there, and our future is with the Lord. It is the truth that we have eternal life with God. Paul says this in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Christian, you have a glorious future ahead of you. And in light of that future, Paul says, stand firm in the Lord. And he believes that our future hope will impact our present reality. And this is true in all of life. You know, what you're hoping for in the future will determine how you act in the here and now. Next week is Leaving Cert. Um, if some of you remember that painful experience. Um, hopefully some of you aren't do, going through that painful experience right now. But if you are doing the Leaving Cert, say you want to study law in Trinity College in Dublin, you need around 500 points. If you want to get 500 points in the Leaving Cert, you're going to have to put in a lot of study and a lot of time. But if you want to do law in WIT, you need to do a lot less. You know, what you want for the future will determine what you do now. If you're working and you want to be promoted and progress in a career, you're not going to be lazy and work. You're not going to show up late. You're not going to call in sick all the time. You're going to work hard so that you get noticed. You know, if you want to retire on a nice pension, you don't wait till you're 60. You get the ball started now. You know, when I was younger, I, I want, during my walk of Christ, I decided one day I want to get married. So I started the shower a lot more because I wanted to have a wife who would love me and not be, you know, afraid of the stench that was coming from me. You know, what we want in the future determines what we do now. And I guess the point is this. This applies for life, or this applies in our faith as well. You know, where you want your faith to go in the future will depend on what you do now. It will set the course today, and your future hope, where that hope is, that will determine where you invest today. You know, if you're hoping for this world alone, you're only going to invest in these things in this world. But if your hope is in the world to come, if your hope is in an eternity with Jesus Christ, then you're going to be focused on that kingdom today. Jesus puts it this way in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moss and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moss nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So where is your treasure? 
And is your treasure on the earth, or is it in heaven? And if your hope is eternity with Christ, then we must stand firm today. As Paul says in chapter 1, we must live, live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we live out the changed life that Jesus has won for us. So again, how do we do this? Well, briefly, we're going to look at three ways that we stand firm in the Christian life in our text this morning. If you take notes, and maybe for the kids who are taking notes, the first is we stand firm by living a life that is marked by forgiveness, unity, and reconciliation. Second is we stand firm by living a mark, a life marked by joy. And finally, we live, we stand firm by living a life that's marked by prayer, thanksgiving, and peace. In contrast to a life of ingratitude, grumbling, anxiety, and strife. And so Christian unity, a life of forgiveness and reconciliation, we see this brought up in verses 2 to 3 of our text this morning. Paul writes, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we see in verses 2 to 3 there that one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter was to deal with a conflict that was happening in the church. Now, we don't know what the conflict was about. We don't know who started it. We don't know how long it was going on for. But what we do know is that it was serious enough for Paul to write a letter about. You know, he leaves out all the juicy gossip of what was happening in that situation, but he does let us know the names of the two people who are in conflict. Imagine you're, you were mentioned in the Bible, and this is what I said about you. Stop fighting. Like, but that's what Paul wants these two ladies to do. There's two ladies in the church by name, Judea and Syntyche. That's the last I'm going to say their names today. Uh, we, and we don't know really anything about them, bar this. We only know that they are having a strong disagreement that was affecting the church. And in fact, one of the reasons that they were anxious in verse 6 is because of this fighting between these two ladies in the church. Now, because of the, the seriousness of this conflict and the fact that it's causing effect in so many people's lives, this tells us that these were very influential people in the church. They were quite possibly leaders, deacons, you know, ministers with authority in the church. Again, we don't know who's right. We don't know who's wrong. What we do know is that Paul wants this to stop. And it seems that the situation has gotten so bad that Paul needs a third party to step in. He says in verse 3, he asks this true companion to step into the situation to help these two make peace. So who is this true companion? We, we don't know. You know, the word here is the word Zyzagus, which could be a name, a really unfortunate name, very really hard to pronounce. But it also, again, means true companion. So this could have been a person, or in the context, it might be the church. But Paul wants the church to step in and help their brother, their two sisters, make peace. Again, whatever it was, Paul recognized that it was necessary for a third party to come in to set these two straight. Because sometimes we need a mediator. You know, no one here is shy to conflict, I'm sure. 
And sometimes we need someone to come into our lives and set things straight. And I know I've needed that in my past. You know, when you're in a relationship with someone, you, you tend to fight. That happens because you're two cynics. And for some strange reason, when me and Dee, my wife, were engaged, it was like the hardest part of our relationship. And she's not here right now, so I can talk all I want about it. Sorry, babe, if you're listening later on in the future. But it was like someone dialed it up to 10. And we were like fighting for, gosh, the whole year. <laughs> we, were, we were engaged. And we didn't know what was going on. There must have been like spiritual attack or something. But we were constantly fighting. And you know, sometimes we were able to reconcile by ourselves, and that was great. But sometimes we needed someone to step in. I remember this one time, we had gone into a fight, and I, I can't even remember like, what the fight was actually about. But all I know is we could not reconcile. No matter how much we tried, neither of us were backing down. We were butting heads. We were both really stubborn. And so when you have two really stubborn people not wanting to agree on something, things escalate. And we couldn't fix this issue. Now, luckily enough, we were having uh, premarital counseling that night with Clay and Janelle, and the topic happened to be on conflict resolution. So God has a sense of humor, I guess. And, you know, before we even got into the topic, Clay and Janelle sat us down and spoke into our lives. And within, like, five minutes, you know, we're both there sobbing, and I'm thinking, I'm, like, the worst fiancé who's ever lived. I am not worthy to marry this woman. But you know what happened was we allowed that conflict to drive us apart from each other. And what Clay and Janelle did was they brought us back together with the truth that we had in common. They told us to stand on truth, the truth that we were loved by God, the truth that we love God, and the truth that we, deep down, despite the fighting, love each other. Again, it was our common truth that united us as a couple. And Paul points to the exact same thing in here in verses 2 to 3. Again, he doesn't say who's wrong and who's wrong and right in this disagreement. He doesn't point to disagreement. He points to the Lord. You know, his words to them is that they should agree in the Lord. Not admit one is right, not admit one is wrong, but agree in the Lord. He reminds them that they both at one time have labored side by side in the gospel for Jesus. And he reminds them that they are Christians whose names are written in the book of life. And what they had in common was far greater than the things that they were allowing to drive them apart. The Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Are you, are you in conflict with someone right now? Maybe not open conflict, we are digging the heads off each other. But is there a long harbored and peace in your heart towards somebody? Is there bitterness in your heart towards a fellow believer? Have you hurt someone and they can't seem to forgive you? Or have you been hurt and you can't seem to forgive them? You know, if there's a conflict in your life with someone in this church, then you need to know that Jesus can bring you together. Jesus wants to bring you together. He wants to reconcile you. 
He is the reason and he is the means of our reconciliation, both to God and to each other. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that we, we, we tend to divide and try to conquer each other. But what Jesus does is Jesus will unite us. So that's the first one. Reconciliation as Christians is how we stand firm in the Lord. For our second command now, verses 4 to 5, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Notice what Paul says here. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, in verse 4. We say always? Really? And he says, again, I will say rejoice. So Paul knew we'd have a problem with that. Remember the situation that Paul wrote this letter from? He wrote it from prison. You know, he was awaiting trial before Nero. He did not know if he was going to have his head the next day of any day, really. And yet, despite his desperate situation, Paul writes a letter full of joy. You know, Paul mentions the word joy and rejoice like over 16 times in this letter. So it gives us a small little indicator as to the overarching theme of this book, and that is joy. See, there is a biblical command to rejoice, and it's wonderful. Spurgeon said, what a gracious God we have who makes delight to be a duty and who commands us to rejoice. Should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? It is intended that we should be happy. So if this is a command from God, and this is something that God desires for you, to be a person who rejoices, but what does it mean to rejoice? How do we define the word rejoice? Well, if you look it up in a dictionary, it will say that rejoice means to feel or show great happiness about something. It means to take delight in something, to celebrate something, to jump for joy, over something. We know what it is to jump for joy. And you know, these definitions, these are all from dictionaries, these are in line with what the Bible means when it says rejoice. It means to delight in something, to have joy and be glad and to literally be buzzing about something. And so, what are we to rejoice in? Is the question then. If the command is to rejoice, what do we rejoice in? And this is where we need to be, be careful, very careful, because Paul doesn't say, what doesn't he say? He doesn't say rejoice in the situation you're in. I want to get that clear. This verse comes right after Paul talking about conflict. He doesn't say rejoice over conflict, does he? No, he doesn't. You know, the truth is that there are things in this life that are wrong. There are things in this life that are not meant to happen. We live in a life that is marred by the, by the presence of sin. We do not rejoice over sin. We do not rejoice over the effects of sin. Again, we are commanded to rejoice, and we should encourage each other to obey that commandment, but not to rejoice over the impacts of sin. You know, when a person loses their job, or when a spouse is betrayed, you know, when a couple loses a child that they were really hoping for, when someone you love gets sick and dies, you don't go up to that person and say, you just got to rejoice, brother. Like, don't ever do that to me. 
because um, it's not right. We don't rejoice in sin or the effects of sin. What we rejoice in, Paul says here, is the Lord. We rejoice in the one thing that never changes. And that is the command to rejoice in God. Again, Paul's joy wasn't built on some naive optimism. It wasn't based on saying he had to have, you know, a positive mental attitude. Just rejoice and think positive things. It was based on the Lord. You might remember Isabella last week did a really good call to worship. And in that she mentioned how in the book of Acts, um, Paul and Silas were in prison. They had been arrested for Jesus. They were stripped. They were beaten and flogged. They were thrown into prison. They were shackled by the legs with the stocks. And what do we see in the book of Acts? In the middle of the night, they are praying and singing hymns to God. And Isabella said something great last week. She said that they were, they rejoiced in the Lord. They were ready to worship God no matter the situation because they rejoiced in him. They rejoiced in him. See, rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean making light of a situation. It doesn't mean trying to diminish the ugliness and the evil of sin. Or to diminish hurt in a person's life. Rejoicing in the Lord means that, yes, we are going through terrible, terrible suffering. But we are not going through that alone. You know, it means that in the midst of our pain, we have a Savior who is with us. You know, we have a Savior who loves us, who cares for us. We have a Savior who suffered in our place. We have a Savior who is in control and who will, by his grace, carry us through the suffering and turn it into good for us. He will turn it out for our good. There's an amazing promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his promise. You know, whatever the, whatever the all things in your life may be right now, whatever that all things is, God will work it together for good. And so you have a reason to rejoice in the Lord. Your situation might not be good, but God is good. And he will work this together for your good. And this joy will bring about gentleness and reasonableness, as it says here in Philippians. A reasonableness that everyone will see. You know, they will see the work of God in your life. So let's move on to verses 5 to 7. It says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, by thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we rejoice because God is near. Because God is always near. And he is good to us. And because we know God is near, we can turn to him with our troubles. And so Paul tells us in verse 6 to not be anxious about anything. And like rejoicing, this is a command. And this is a command that will affect most of you, if not all of you in this room. A command to not be anxious. Now, anxiety. Anxiety is a big word these days. If you look it up, anxiety in the dictionary says just a feeling of worry, 
or nervousness or unease about something with an uncertain outcome. And when you say it like that, anxiety sounds pretty small, doesn't it? Like, you're just worried about something, that's all. But you know, anxiety disorders were the number one mental health issue in the world globally in 2017. It affected the lives of 284 million people. In the world, if you're a woman, you're one and a half times more likely to have anxiety disorders than a man. Physically, anxiety can cause nightmares, sleep issues, uh, poor concentration, headaches, sweating, you know, when we preach, for instance, trembling, and diarrhea. And I won't make a joke about that. From a mental point of view, it can cause persistent bad moods, feelings of dread, and cause you to be constantly worried, and sometimes worried about nothing where you can't even pinpoint it. One in six people in Ireland suffer from anxiety issues. So statistically, at least 10 of you in this room are suffering from anxiety issues right now, from a statistical point of view. You're anxious about something. So is anxiety an issue? Yeah. Do Christians suffer from it? Yeah. But does God care about this? And does God want you to overcome this? The answer is yes. So Paul wants us to deal with this and to overcome it. So what's the one person, what's the one thing you don't say to a person when they're angry? You don't tell them to calm down. If you tell an angry person to calm down, they will get angry. If Nora is in a, in a hissy fit and I tell her to calm down and relax, she's going to scream all the more louder because that doesn't really work with people. And yet Paul tells the people here who are anxious to not be anxious. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but again, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives us three things in this verse here. He gives us a command, which is to not be anxious. He gives us a method, and he gives us a promise. So again, we know the command. The command is to not be anxious. But how? what's the method for obeying this command? How do we obey the command to not be anxious? It is by prayer and thanksgiving. You know, there's a wonderful truth, and it is this, is that there is power in prayer. James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. And, and too often we buy into the lie that prayer is meaningless, that prayer is a waste of time, that prayer has no effect. You know, when, when there's a lot of stress on your mind, when there's a um, burden, when there's anxiety and you need to make a decision, sometimes the last thing you want to do is pray. You feel like you have to just do something now and get on with it. And yet it is in that exact moment where we need to be praying to the Lord. This is something the Bible, time and time again, warns us of, that we need to seek God in all things. Saul, Saul was the very first king of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul's downfall was that he chose not to seek God in his life. And there was one very specific moment where he chose not to seek God, and that led to his death. First Chronicles tells us that Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord, and that he did not keep the command of the Lord. 
and he also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. The Bible teaches when we do not seek the Lord, it can lead to ruin. When we don't put God first in all things, our way will most often be chaotic. But the flip side is when we do trust in the Lord, there is great blessing. Paul says that instead of being anxious, we should make prayer and supplications to God. Now, when we say the word prayer, you know, that can come with a lot of baggage, but prayer is simply communicating to God. It is talking to God. And it's great. God's desire is for us to talk to him in the same way we'll be talking to each other after service today. He wants us to speak to him. But along with that, it says he wants us to make supplication to him. Now, supplications means you're asking God to do something directly. You're, you're going straight to the throne saying, God, I want you to do this. And for me, that's an amazing talk that the God of the universe wants us to ask him to do things on our behalf. He wants us to ask for his help. God knows all things, yes, but he still wants us to participate like you would in any relationship and to ask him for help. That is his desire. And what's great is Paul says this is to be done for everything. You know, sometimes it feels like we can't bring the small things to God. That, you know, we can only bring the big things that, you know, why would we waste God's time with the small things? But everything, God wants to be involved in every aspect of our lives. Not just the big things, but the small, minute things that we think are inconsequential, God loves and God wants to be a part of. We can bring anything to God, no matter what it is. But notice, like in any relationship, you don't go up to a person and start demanding in their face for something. You know, if I went up to Dean Toler to like to make me a cup of coffee, her, the, the reaction won't be good, and I'll look like a jerk. But Paul says we need to approach God with an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's so important, because our flesh can so easily get ungrateful, can't it? You know, we get entitled, we get angry, we get bitter. And when we're in a bad situation, when we are suffering, it is easy to lose perspective, and it can be easy to get bitter towards God to blame him for putting us in this situation, to get angry at him and to demand him to fix it. But Paul says we must guard our hearts against this, so we must bring our requests to God with thanksgiving. That's the important word, with thanksgiving. He doesn't say we have to be thankful for the hardship, but thankful to God for who he is in this situation. And so prayer and thanksgiving is the cure to anxiety, Paul says. Prayer deals with the how of dealing with the situation. We trust God that he will deal with it. And thanksgiving deals with the why, because we know we are in this situation because God has allowed us to be there for our good. The how and the why, God will deal with. And when we obey God in this, Paul says in verse 7, we will have the promise of peace. He says in verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's an amazing promise. And what's amazing about it, most of all, is that it's true. I remember the first time I ever came across 
in these verses. Um, I was in Bible college in Germany. You know, I had done a semester, and over the summer I had no job, I had no income, I had no way of saving up for Bible college and to pay for my fees, and yet I felt the call of God to go back to Germany. You know, I went there, and all I had was enough for a deposit, and that was it. And so I, I, I emailed them and said, yeah, look, it's grand. It'll get sorted. I'm like, how? And so I fly over to Germany, and I was anxious, to say the least. You know, week after week was passing, and I had no deposit, you know, no fees paid off. You know, five weeks left, four weeks left, three weeks left. Lord, what are you going to do? I felt absolutely helpless. And I, I remember I, me, I met with the de dean of men, and I was just sobbing before him. I told him I couldn't afford socks for my feet, let alone fees. Literally, I couldn't afford socks. It was a real smell issue happening. He pointed me to these verses and to the command of Paul. And we obeyed it. We spent about 30 minutes just praying about everything. You know, my, 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 my socks, my fees, every little thing. And you know what? I walked out of the office, and my situation did not change, but God had changed me. You know, I had a peace. I had an acceptance that was hard to explain. It surpassed understanding, as Paul said. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew God would call me to do something, and he was going to work it out. He gave me faith to trust in him. And less than a week later, to my surprise and the dean's surprise, I got gifted a new pair of socks, which was like the biggest miracle ever at that time. And before the semester was out, my fees were paid. I remember it was a few weeks before the semester ended, and the secretary called me into her office to talk about my fees. And I'm like, oh, no. This is it. It's gone too far. I'm getting kicked home. They're going to kick me out of Germany. I'm, at a, I'm done with Bible college. I can't go back. And she told me that the church in Ziegen had a fund. And they only mentioned it then, but they had a fund for students who couldn't afford Bible college. And the pastors of the church, they looked at my situation, they looked at the funds that were available, and the exact amount in that fund was the exact amount I needed down to the cents. God did a miracle. And I jumped out of that room, cartwheeling, and I think I fell over, but I cartwheeled in joy. And I'm telling you this not to say, you know, be irresponsible or, you know, God will come true the way you expect every single time. But I want you to know that God is faithful. You know, as we obey him, we will see his faithfulness. He gave me peace, which was the greatest gift of all. You know, if, if, if I walked out of that, that office that day and said, you have to pay off your debt for the next two years, that would have been fine. Because God gave me something greater. He gave me a peace. He gave me peace beyond the situation. So if you're anxious about something, if there's an issue plaguing your mind, you don't need to helplessly stay in that place. You need to take it to the Lord and give it over to God in prayer. That might take a day, it might take a week, it might take a long time, but we need to bring it to the Lord in prayer. There's a hymn we sang a few weeks ago. It says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So if we are obeying the Lord, we will see his faithfulness. Let's close with our final two verses. It reads, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul closes this text, our, our section this morning. He reminds us that we are again called to live a different life. Again, the things we think about, the way we walk, is to be different from the world. And he lists out all these different things. You know, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, worthy of praise. Think on these things. A Christian marked by peace will be thinking upon the things of God. And that's a commandment that as we go forward, our minds focus on the word of God. Our minds focus on the commandments of God. Our minds focus on the words and the promises of Jesus. And as we do this, he says, we are to think upon these things and to actually do these things. He says, what you have received and heard from me, practice these things. Again, it's not enough just to dwell. We have to put that dwelling into action. We live out what we have learned. Forgiveness, rejoicing in the Lord, praying, making supplications, seeking a life of peace. We live out these things and we, again, we do this and we live a life that is marked by good works and transformation. And Paul says, when we do this, we are promised that the God of peace will be with us. And that is our call today, to walk in that. But there's a problem, isn't there? There's one problem. And the problem is that we, we fail in this. We fail time and time again. You know, we know what we are meant to do, and so often we do the exact opposite. By ourselves, the truth is we can't know peace. By ourselves, the God of peace is nowhere to be found. And so, by ourselves, all we can really know when it comes to the Lord is trouble, conflict, bitterness, and sorrow. No peace. And again, that's why I want to remind you, as we put these things into practice, we don't put these things into practice to try and get that peace of God. We do this because we know the one who has brought us peace. You know, we don't obey God to try and get a better future. We obey him because our future has been purchased by the blood of Christ. We don't try and make peace between ourselves to please God. We make peace because Jesus has won our peace on the cross. You know, we experience peace in our lives because Jesus took upon our sorrow and our shame and our grief. And he carried that to the cross for us. And we don't try and rejoice in our bad and stained situations. We take joy in the fact that we are God's joy. You know, we look to the one who took our sadness and who crowned us with joy and with peace. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we are not left alone in our faith, God. But Jesus, as the scripture says, we look to you, the founder and the perfecter of our faiths. God, as we go forward today, God, as we, as we put into, thing, into practice the things that you have shown us in your words, may we do so by your grace and by your power, God, not our own. God, we thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you give us peace. Thank you that you give us a reason to rejoice. Thank you that you will not leave us the same as we were yesterday, God. Jesus, thank you that you never leave or forsake us, Lord. You are with us until the end. Father, I pray there's anyone who does not know you, who does not know your peace, who does not know your joy, who has not experienced the grace found in Jesus. I pray, God, today they would turn to you in repentance. And God, for us who trust you, may we walk forward in that grace, God, as we seek to be more and more like you.